Look at uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 as we continue to move our way through this wonderful Gospel, this uh, uh, version of uh, the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the Gospel writer Luke. And this series I entitled when I first started it as Follow Me with the emphasis on discipleship because so much of what is taught in this gospel pertains to the mission of Christ and then the handing off of that mission to those who would be his followers. And that's not just those original 12 or those who came out of the early church. It's talking to you and me. Every one of us who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and acknowledging Him and committing to follow Him, we are His disciples as well. So we'll begin um, chapter 9, verse 24, where we left off uh, talking about the, the commitments of discipleship last week. Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, I'm not excited that we have to deploy thousands of our military men and women to the Middle East to bring stability there, to kind of calm down some of the things that the country of Iran is doing. But even with that, I do find a good deal of comfort in knowing that the United States military provides our men and women with all that they need to know, the facts. They provide them with all that they need to experience in training. And Pastor Mark alluded to that this morning in our Christian growth group, the importance of basic training when eventually that soldier finds himself on, or herself, himself on the front line. So everything they need to experience before getting there, the military provides. And then not only that, they also take great care to make sure that all of our personnel have what they need to possess in terms of equipment. Heaven forbid that we would send men and women into battle asking them to risk their lives and not tell them the facts that they need to know, provide them the experiences of training so that when they get on the, on the front line, they, they, they have some idea of what to expect, and certainly to give them the equipment that they need to fulfill their mission. And so as I think about discipleship, and last week I gave you uh, a, a de definition that Dr. Avery Willis, uh, a great discipler in our Southern Baptist Convention, and now he's in the presence of the Lord. But he said Christian discipleship is a process of uh, developing a lifelong, obedient, personal relationship with Jesus Christ in which Christ transforms our character into Christ-likeness. And He changes our values into kingdom values. And He involves us in His mission, in our home, in our church, and in our world. So let me just help you to understand that as we look at Jesus in His earthly ministry, our Lord is preparing His faithful followers for the spiritual warfare that is before them, and He's diligently equipping them with everything that they need to know. He's, he's taking great care and pain to, to subject them to everything they need to experience. He taught them the great 
kingdom lessons of the kingdom of heaven in the Beatitudes. He, he allowed them to experience the very power of the Son of God at sea in a terrible raging storm. And then not only that, he made sure that they would possess everything they would need in order to prevail in their mission. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. The Lord Jesus does that same thing for you and me. As He sends us into spiritual warfare, that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. Listen, as He is equipping His disciples, He's making sure that we are ready and that we don't falter in this great mission. The Lord is not going to set us up to fail. He's not going to set us up to be unsuccessful in that which He's called us to do. So last week, as we stopped at verse 23, we looked at the commitments of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I would simply urge you to take a good hard look at your relationship with the Lord and ask yourself, am I simply a superficial name only believer? Or am I truly a follower of Christ? Do I commit myself to denying myself taking up my cross daily and following Him wherever He leads. You say, well, isn't that really for the radically religious? You know, the Jesus freaks. No, no. It's for every person who considers themselves to be a Christian. And there will be a day when that, that fact will come to fruition. Such as in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, when the Lord says, Many will say, Lord, Lord, say to me, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter the kingdom of heaven because they fail to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so you understand, only true disciples have any hope of going to heaven. There are a lot of people who wear the label of Christian who consider themselves to be Christians, but in all reality, they don't pass the test. They don't meet the requirements. And the Lord has been very stringent in that. So after having very clearly and succinctly described the requirements of true Christian discipleship in verse 23, the Lord now is expanding on that radical principle, if you will. And so as we begin looking at verse 24, I want, to, I want you to consider first what I consider to be the disciples' self-renouncing faith. A true follower of Jesus Christ exhibits this type of faith. It is a self-renouncing faith. And you'll see what I'm talking about in the words of Christ as He addresses His apostles back then. The very idea itself of renouncing ourselves, denying ourselves, depriving ourselves, grates against the selfish and self-serving nature of our, our, our flesh sinful flesh nature. It's not something that people want to hear. It's not something that people certainly don't want to embrace. But this self-renouncing faith of a true disciple of Jesus Christ leads to a couple of things, and we'll see this in the text this morning. First of all, forfeiting a willingness to forfeit temporal pleasures in lieu of eternal rewards. Look with me at verse 24 in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, and whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This 
expression that Jesus uses here is a, one of the most common expressions that Jesus uses in the gospel. Second only to his, his command to follow me. When Jesus talks about anyone that seeks to save his life will lose their life. Anyone losing their life for my sake, he says they will, they will save it. And this is, this is true as I think about the writings of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4. Listen to what Paul says in verse 16. Therefore, Paul says, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. A self-renouncing faith of a true disciple enables that disciple, enables you and me, not to become entangled in the things of the world. See, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but they're more invested in the earthly life than they are in the heavenly life. And Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth where, that will rust and the moths will eat and they can be stolen by thieves. He says, store up treasures in heaven. I like how the apostle Paul or John in his epistle the first epistle of John in chapter 2, in verse 16. Listen to what John says in chapter 2, verse 15. Let me back up. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it, but and the, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. You see, following Christ involves being willing to deny ourselves, and not only that, to deny the temptations of this world, to invest our our energies and and our talents and our abilities to build a kingdom for ourselves here on earth. When, when the Bible says, when Christ is saying, anyone who is willing to die, to, to, to die for my sake, he says, you will, you will save your life. You will have eternal life. Months ago, when we were focusing on the kingdom of God and talking about being kingdom citizens, you may recall, I challenged each of us with this simple challenge, this phrase, we must rise above the entrapments of our earthly existence in order to embrace our citizenship in the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. If you're so concerned about making a life for yourself here, he says, guess what? You will lose it in eternity. On the other hand, if through your self-denying your self-renouncing faith and your commitment to follow me at all cost. If you lose your life, if it costs you your life, you will have life for eternity. And so we see that as we look back at chapter 9 and continue in verse 25, Jesus uses an ex a figure of speech. It's an exaggerated hyperbole in verse 25. Jesus says, For what advantage is it to a man, if he gains the whole world 
and is himself destroyed or lost. Now, as I said, that's a figure of speech. We don't know anybody that owns the whole world. We know some people that come pretty close to it. <laughs> I'm talking about the billionaires, but, but nobody owns the whole. But Jesus said, just what if? He's using this exaggerated form of speech to, to capture their attention. What if somebody could possess all the money, all the real estate, all the, 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 the minerals of the world, everything? What if they could, they could possess the whole world and yet ended up losing their lives, losing their soul. Folks, there's nothing in this world. There's no possession. There's no prominence. There's no power. There's nothing worth losing your soul over. Jesus says, is it worth it? If you could possess the whole world and somehow lose your soul, stop and think about it. If you can lose that which is temporary and temporal, and, 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 and if you could gain that which is temporal and, and temporary and lose that which is eternal, is it worth it? We saw that played out in the story that in the gospel of the rich young ruler who came to Christ and wanted to know what must I do to have eternal life? And you remember, Jesus walked him through you know, the, all the legal requirements of the Scripture, and He says, I've done that. And then Jesus simply said, there's only one thing lacking. Take all that you have. And He was rich. Very rich. Take all that you have and sell it. And just give it to the poor. Now, you know good and well, that young man, that rich young man didn't say, got it, no problem. I'm writing the check out right now. It says that He walked away very sad. He wasn't the only one sad that day, folks. Jesus was sad because Jesus realized this man had proven himself to be a fool. He was blinded spiritually and he was not willing to, to give up the temporal in exchange for the eternal. So a self-renouncing faith leads us to forfeit temporal pleasures in lieu of eternal rewards. The Lord is not saying that we shouldn't possess things. He's not saying that we shouldn't earn a living and, 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 and supply our needs. He's not saying that. I mean, my goodness, the Bible has accounts of people who were faithful followers of Christ who were very wealthy. I think about Abraham. I think about Job. The, the Lord is not against wealth. He's saying, don't let that own you. Don't let your possessions possess you such that you give all of your allegiance to that and forfeit your soul for eternity. So a self-renouncing faith is willing to forfeit temporal pleasures in lieu of eternal rewards, but there's something else that the Lord wants us to see here. A disciple's self-renouncing faith, that, that faith that would enable us to, to renounce what our selfish, sinful flesh would want and the world would encourage us to desire. It also leads us to risk ridicule in this life in order to receive divine affirmation in eternity. Uh, there's something in all of us that wants the affirmation of people. We want people to like us and we want to, to be popular with people and, and, and that, that's important, I understand. But look at verse 26 when the Lord says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed 
when he comes in his own glory. Jesus is speaking of his second coming. When he comes in his own glory and in his Father's glory and of the holy angels, Jesus says, that person who is ashamed of me, he says, I will be ashamed of them. Does your faith enable you to, to proudly and boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life? In the midst of those people that you know don't share that kind of conviction? Are you willing to stand up for Jesus at any time, in any place, no matter what? Or is there some part of you that is ashamed and you're sheepish and you're not willing to risk the ridicule of others because of that? If you hold your place there in Luke's Gospel in chapter 9 and look with me over at Matthew's Gospel as, as Matthew addresses this in his rendition of this presentation in, in Matthew chapter 10. Look at verse 32. It expands a little bit more on what Luke gives us. In, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, sometimes we think that we want to keep the peace. And so therefore, we will be a little bit hesitant to, to proclaim our faith in Christ or to stand for Christ and to, to, to make statements of faith on behalf of the Lord or, or on behalf of the gospel. But let me tell you something. Jesus didn't bring the powerful truth of the gospel message into this world to bring everybody together. Continue reading with me there in Matthew chapter 10. Right after Jesus has said this, whoever confesses me before men, he says, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life, here you go, will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake. Did you understand what Jesus is saying? When, you, when it costs you dearly because of your stance of faith in Christ and the gospel, Jesus says, don't worry. You will find life. Life eternal. And so our self-renouncing faith leads us to make professions of faith boldly. Even if you're part of a family and, and you're the only member of that family that does not believe, maybe you got atheists and agnostics and just people who despise the name of Christ and you have opportunity to give a witness for the Lord and somehow you say, well, I really want to just try to keep the peace. I'd rather not. Uh, I'm embarrassed. Everybody else is, you know, a successful atheist and here I am a Christian and so there I'm, I'm a little bit timid and Jesus says, listen, if you consider your love for your family more important than your love for me, then you need to re-examine your commitment to me as a disciple. The Lord minces no words. Now, I think it's important as we go back to chapter 9 and we look at that verse 26. And Jesus says, And whoever is ashamed of me 
and my words. Jesus is saying, not only should we be bold to profess our faith in Christ, but we should also be willing to take a stand for the, for the gospel, like Paul there in Romans in chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. And so should we. We should not deny the Lord. We should not deny His message of salvation, but be willing to take a stand for Him, even if everybody rejects us. And Jesus wasn't talking, by the way, there in verse 26, when He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed. Jesus wasn't talking about temporary faith failures. Jesus is talking about those people who routinely, consistently deny Him. We know that Peter, Peter, Simon Peter, when, when Jesus was on trial and He was confronted by the servant girl, aren't you one of His followers? Not just once, not just twice, but three times Simon Peter denied knowing the Lord. Does that mean that Peter had no faith in the Lord? No, it meant Peter's faith was weak. So when the Lord is talking about those who are ashamed of Him and ashamed of His Word, He's talking about those who are rejecting Him and who are lost. And anyone claiming to be a Christian and yet consistently rejecting the Lord and the teachings of the Lord and His Gospel has a right to want to re-examine and ask themselves if they are truly a follower of Christ. So this self-renouncing faith that follows denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily and following Him, this is a strong language, people. But so is being a Christian. This concept of easy believism that liberal theology has infiltrated into so many churches and evangelical movements out there today is, is, is heresy held up against the stringent teachings of the Lord Himself. Be willing to take up our cross that represents sacrifice and possibly even death, if need be. So now, right, right on the heels of this, as we move forward in verse 27, and, and so I'm leaving now the disciples' self-renouncing faith, and I want us to focus on the Lord's dazzling revelation. He's setting the disciples up for what comes next. And in verse 27, if you'll notice, Jesus says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And we think about the kingdom of God, we think about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And, and, and yet, He's talking to disciples who are living and breathing and standing there looking at Him. And this is sometimes is a puzzling verse. For some, some, some of the critics say, well, you know, this proves that everything's not right because we know good and well all these guys died before. You know, Jesus hasn't come yet, not the second coming. So therefore, there's got to be a problem here. Well, if you just stay with the story, if you follow the flow, you'll see that Jesus wasn't talking about His ultimate second coming. He's talking about what's about to happen in just a few days. And so, with that, Jesus is, is about to, to set the stage for one of the most phenomenal, supernatural moments of their life. But not, not for all of them. So let's, let's, let's read there, picking up in verse 28. 
And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, and if you read in Matthew's rendition of this uh, over in Matthew chapter 17, Matthew says six days, but you know, I think commentators say that Luke just couches in the day that Jesus said this and then the day that it occurred. Matthew just said it was six days before it occurred. But anyway, and it came to pass after eight days, after these sayings, that he took Peter, John, and James and went upon the mountain to pray. You know, this is becoming a fairly familiar scenery, a setting. I mean, I love going to the mountains. I love going to the beach. But, you know, there's something about getting up on that, those majestic mountains and looking down across the, you know, the valley below. And, 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 and I don't know, maybe the higher the mountain, the closer you feel to God or whatever. But, but we do know that Jesus liked to go up on the mountain. It's a good place to get away. And he liked to pray there. And so his disciples probably would have thought, well, we're going up for another prayer meeting. Now, it's interesting, as we look at this, this revelation that's unfolding, unfolding, I want you to see, first of all, the significance of his delegation. Because we just see there in verse 28 that he's not taken the whole bunch. He's taken Peter, James, and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee. And, and we know now, as we look at the pattern of the Scripture, that these men were Jesus' inner circle. These are the men that he spent the most time with. These are the men that he talked the most. These are the men that he probably trusted the most. You may recall just recently when we looked in chapter 8 at verse 51, when Jesus went to the house of Jairus, the, the, the leader of the synagogue, whose daughter was dying, in fact had died. Peter, James, and John were the only ones that Jesus would allow to go into the chamber with the lifeless body of that little girl where he raised her. You may recall in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, in the Easter, uh, the Passion story, in, in chapter 14 of, of Mark's Gospel, verse 33, that Jesus took only James, John, and Peter in, into the deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane where they could witness him pouring his heart out, one of the most intimate moments of prayer between the Father and the Son, and yet, unfortunately, they fell asleep. Not once twice so but this inner circle this is the the delegation that jesus takes up on the mountain and there's another reason maybe in addition to the fact that there were this inner circle jesus is fulfilling the legal requirement of deuteronomy 19:15 that said in order to substantiate and to confirm any event there had to be at least two witnesses and so he's got his three trusted witnesses that he's taken up on the mountaintop so that's the significance of the delegation as this, this amazing story is unfolding, this episode in Jesus' ministry is unfolding. But then as we look further, beginning in, in, in verse 29, I want you to see the significance of his presentation. This is what we're getting to. Oftentimes we call this mountain. We don't know which one, whether it's Mount Nebo or Moriah or, or uh, uh, whichever. We just know it was a tall mountain. And it says in verse 29, And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. There was a transfiguration going on according to Matthew's version of this same story. Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. Matthew says he was transfigured. 
That's the Greek word that we draw metamorphosis from. As you think about an ugly caterpillar going into a cocoon and then several weeks later emerging out as a beautiful, totally different form and, 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 and dazzling beauty, metamorphosis. There was a metamorphosis that was supernatural that was transforming in Christ at that moment. So Matthew says he was being transfigured and hence oftentimes we speak of this as being the Mount of Transfiguration because of what was going on with Christ at that time. I think it's interesting, Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary points out that the transfiguration was not the fulfillment of Jesus' glorious second coming, but rather a preview. They were not getting to see the full show. You ever go to a theater? They tell you to be there, the movie starts at four. It doesn't start at four, you know. You're 4.30, you're looking at your watch, you've seen a zillion trailers, right? Teasers to get you to come back to the theater. Well, this is kind of like a spiritual teaser. Like, you know, hey, as great as this is, wait for the show, boys. The second coming. No, that's not in the scripture, so don't read too much into it. But the, but the Lord's, His eternal essence is beginning to, to shine through. Look As we look there in chapter 9, and, and, and go on further in verse 30. Then behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. Wow. We just looked at these great men, pillars of faith. In the, I mean, you're talking about two heavy hitters from the Old Testament. And they're on the top of that mountain. There they are. Not only just standing there, they're engaging in conversation with the Son of God. Whew, what a moment when you like to have had a cell phone video of that. But anyway, in verse uh, 31, who, who appeared in glory and spoke of his de decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Let's just stop and look at that for a second. Talking about the glory of God. And, and, and not only that, the glory that was upon Moses and Elijah having come from the very presence of God. This is not the first time, folks, that Moses has glowed, okay? We know from the Scriptures that Moses had an encounter where he asked the Lord to show me your glory. And we know that in that encounter in the book of Exodus, that God indeed revealed His, His glory to Moses. And as a result of that, God's glory continued to shine on Moses indirectly. In fact, let me just share just briefly in Exodus chapter 33, how this all unfolded. Looking at verse 18, and Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And then the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to you to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And in verse 20, he, and he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see my face and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me. You shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand and I will pass by. And indeed, Moses got to simply look at the backside of God 
and he saw even just a glimpse of the glory of God. And the scripture says he continued to glow from the reflection of that glory. Listen, Moses and Elijah stepping out of the very presence of God here on this mountain. And, and they're glowing with the, the residual glory of God. But there's a difference in what's going on with Christ and with these men. They, they show the reflection of God's glory. Listen, Jesus begins to glow. His face begins to, to glow with the, the, the great essence of the, of the glory, the present. Listen, with the glory of God in the Old Testament represented the very presence of God, the, the essence of God. And that's why Moses was so determined that he wanted to, to, to witness the most intimate contact with God that he could. And so when Jesus is being transformed, what you see is not glory shining on him and reflecting back. You see from his very essence as the Son of God, the glory beginning to come forth out of him, even shining through his clothes. Just for a glimpse. How are the disciples asleep? Who would want to sleep through the most important part? I believe the Lord put him to sleep just as God in His mercy put Moses in the cleft of that rock. I realized that when the glory of God began to shine through His Son, God put those guys to sleep until things began to tame down. And by the time they wake up and they open their eyes, they can see that Jesus has obviously been transformed, probably not in the fullness of His glory at this point, and they could see there's Moses and Elijah. And so this is a big deal. In the Old Testament, anytime the reference was to the glory of God, it was something that captured the attention of His people because it represented the presence and the power of God and the nature of God. In, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5, it says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In this wonderful messianic passage out of Isaiah chapter 40, he's proclaiming that there's coming a time when all the earth will see the glory of God. And we will one day. And they did that day. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews helps us to see the importance of what we're just looking at right here. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, he says, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers of the, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Listen to verse 3 who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. So when they look upon Christ Jesus, they are looking upon God. And the same glory, I believe we were singing that, the glory of God, the glory of the Spirit, the glory of the Son, they're all the same. And so now we see on this mountaintop two of the pillars of faith, great giants of, of leadership of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. And it's worth noting in verse 31 that they're not just talking about the weather. They're not just talking about general things of like what's going on. I think it's interesting that Moses and Elijah are speaking specifically to Christ about what is described here is about His decease 
which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. These men, by the way, this is not the first time they meet Christ. I mean, stop and consider it. Moses died 1,500 years before. And he's had the opportunity to be in the presence of the, of the Lord. And what about Elijah? 800 years? There's no shock or surprise. They knew what the mission of Christ. Listen, they were watching as he was dispatched to the earth to be incarnated in the form of a little baby. They knew that he came on a mission that would cost him his life. They knew when he headed to Jerusalem that he would become the sacrificial Lamb of God who would fulfill the mission of God to redeem lost humanity. Wow. Can you imagine what Peter, James, and John must have been thinking, what they must have been feeling at that very point? We'll move on. In verse 33, and it happened as they were parting from him, talking about Moses and Elijah, and, and Luke is the only one that picks up on that. The rest of them just talk about you know, uh, the interaction between Peter and Jesus. But the fact is, I believe this is what prompted Peter to, to, to very impulsively, in his own impetuous nature, Peter makes a declaration, and, and I want you to see, this is important. Simon Peter's impetuous and accurate proposal at this point. Peter sees that Elijah and Moses are getting ready to leave, and he's saying, whoa, 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 time out. Whoa, hold on, fellas, I'm paraphrasing. But, but look what Peter says as he sees them about to depart. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. If Peter woke up and the thing he hears the, Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus about was the thing that, that he had heard the Lord already tell them. He's going to go to Jerusalem and they will be arrested and killed. And, and he's hearing them talk about it. Peter, in his own mind, very impulsively says, hold on, hold on. Why don't we just build tabernacles up here and we just stay here? We don't have to go down to deep, dark, dirty Jerusalem. We don't have to go down there and suffer through all of that. Let's just camp out up here. Mistake. Poor Peter. Seems like he was always putting his foot in his mouth. But, but you know, that's one of the things I think that just set him apart and made him great. But as he was saying this, look at the end of that verse. Verse 33. <laughs> it says, Peter had said all this about the tabernacles, not knowing what he said. Have you ever had an occasion where you said something and then instantly wished you didn't say it? Don't you wish that the Lord had just created a device in us so that, it, like, if we say something, you could just quick, you know, like, delete? <laughs> Before it gets to the ears. Of, yeah. Well, Peter didn't even think about what he was saying, but God knew. God the Father was listening, and God immediately wasted no time in setting the record. Straight. First of all, Peter, you, you, you're trying to short-circuit my plan, boy. Who are you to offer an alteration to my divine plan to redeem the lost humanity? Well, 
And then two, how dare you? Even as great as Moses and Elijah are, how dare you equate my son with mere humans? And so let's listen to God the Father. Verse 34, while he was saying this, Peter, a cloud came and overshadowed them. That's when if I was Peter, I would say, what, whoa. Because in the Bible and the Old Testament, oftentimes the God was represented. He came down in a dark cloud. Listen, when God comes down, it's not going to be good. And so this cloud overshadowed them and they were feel fearful as they entered the cloud. They should have been. Then a voice. I don't mean it was just a squeaky little voice. I mean, the scripture talks about the voice of God being like a, a loud trumpet piercing the ear. And in the darkness of that cloud, you hear this piercing divine voice that booms. This is my beloved son. Matthew in his version adds, in whom I am well pleased. And then God finishes it off by saying, hear him. Peter, James, John, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You don't have to alter his mission. You don't have to tamper with who he is. You don't have to dumb him down to humanity. He is the son of God. Now listen to him. Yeah, that's a pretty significant thing on a person's resume, being one of the few people that God told directly to shut up. <laughs> Must have worked. Verse 36, and when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. Elijah and Moses has gone back to the presence of the Lord. But look what comes next. But they kept quiet. And told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. You know, folks, this made a lasting and very deep impression upon the Apostle Peter. It would to anybody. But we see that reflected as I close in 1 Peter chapter 1. This is Peter writing in his epistle. In verse 16, Peter says, For we did not follow cunning devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, speaking of God, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Notice Peter left out the shut up part at this point. But everybody knew it. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter never forgot. Not that he didn't have faith failures after that, but the fact is, Peter realized how blessed he was to have been selected by the Son of God to accompany him to the top of a mountain where he would see things that would absolutely blow his mind, dazzle his spirit, and put a hunger in his heart to say, wow, if that's how fantastic just a glimpse of the glory of the Lord is, imagine when it, when it comes to fruition and fulfillment where Jesus says, I'm coming again. 
in power and in glory how great that day will be. Ladies and gentlemen, we have that to look forward to. Through the Scriptures, we capture glimpses of the glory of the Lord in stories like this. But let me close with this challenge to you or affirmation to you as true followers of Jesus Christ. When you commit by faith to genuinely follow the Lord Jesus Christ as a true disciple, He is faithful to supply you with everything you need to know, everything you need to have, and everything you need to experience in order to be successful in His mission in your life. Jesus was about the business of calling and equipping followers because He was on a mission. And He wasn't, wasn't calling them to a life of luxury and comfort and esteem. He was calling them to follow Him sacrificially because He knew that one day He would go to the top of a hill and be hung on a cross in absolute agony and shed His precious sinless blood for the redemption of lost humanity. And why wouldn't those who claim to love Him with all their being be willing to make sacrifices on His behalf in this short existence we call life on the earth? Oh, I pray to God that He might find me faithful as a disciple and willing to take a stand for Him no matter the cost. And I pray that for you. I've asked... Pastor Mark, Sister Amy to come and lead us in singing. When I survey the wondrous cross, as we think about our precious Lord and what He has done for us and what He continues to do for us, I pray that the words of God's holy word, this, this message, this wonderful episode would challenge you to take a good look at your life and ask yourself, am I that follower? Am I that person that exhibits this kind of self-sacrificial faith in the Lord Jesus Christ?